In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory, Glory be, be to, to the, the Father, Father, and to the Son, and, and to the Holy Spirit, as, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, and, and will be forever. Amen. As we move through the Easter season, we remain with our first reading in the book of Acts. And this week, we look at Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is kind of an interesting chapter to look at because we receive the first portion of the chapter as the first reading for Pentecost, the middle chunk as the reading for Trinity Sunday, which is the week after Pentecost, and then the end of chapter 2 gets kind of spread out across the season, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But what we are jumping into for this week and next week is actually the last, not even quarter, the last maybe 15 to 20% of the chapter that follows Peter's great Pentecost sermon. And so as we hear this, we've got to keep that in our mind that we're entering into a moment in the early church history that is at the end of a sermon, so we get to see how people respond to what Peter has to say. So we'll begin by reading Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So each time we have these readings from Acts chapter 2 that deal with the sermon from Pentecost, we start with this line, Peter standing with the eleven, lift up his voice and address them. This is right after they've received the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like flames of uh, fire, and they're speaking in tongues. It's right after that happens. Peter stands up and he begins the sermon. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. That is the way the sermon begins. And so anytime we have a reading from this later part of Acts, or Acts chapter 2, we hear this line to situate us in that sermon. So as I said, we'll hear the entirety of the sermon split over Pentecost and Trinity Sunday. But what is interesting is the effects of the sermon, which we hear today, occur in the lectionary during the A year, which we are in this year. And we hear it on Easter 3 and on Easter 4, so this week and next week. They are also assigned for proper three for years B and C, but we rarely ever use that set of readings in the church year because proper three would fall on the Sunday between May 24th and May 28th. And the only way you can do that is if Easter itself falls between March 22nd and March 26th. So we don't normally have an Easter that early, which means we don't normally hear the readings for proper three, which would be the, the end of May. Now, I did a little bit of fun with numbers. I actually didn't do the math. I pulled it off of a website that deals with the date of Easter and interesting things that happen around it, trying to figure out when do we actually get to use proper three, that early reading at the end of May, which means that Easter needs to be early. We had that in 2008 and in 2016. 
We'll get it again in 2027, 2032, 2035, and 2046. That means we'll have an Easter that is very early at the end of March. Easter, you'll remember, is always the first Sunday following the spring, the first full moon following the spring equinox, which means that the earliest Easter can be is March 22nd, the latest it can be is April 25th. Having it on March 22nd is exceedingly rare. The last time Easter was on March 22nd was 1818, and it won't happen again until 2285. So it just doesn't normally occur. March 23rd is also pretty rare. We had it in 20, uh, 2008, but it won't happen again until 2160. And so quite far apart these earlier days. On the flip side, the latest Easter can be is April 25th. We do get to have that in 2038, so most of us will see that. We did have it uh, on April 24th, not too long ago, but April 25th is pretty late, which means that April 18th, which would have been Tuesday of this week, would be Palm Sunday, to put it in perspective. And it also pushes everything really far into June, meaning we wouldn't begin the ordinary season where we turn the pyramids to green until the end of June, beginning of July. June 28th would be the earliest that we would do that. And so we can see that Easter has this movement, and it's all depending on the full moon following the spring equinox. Now, I did come across a piece of trivia that I gave to Paul earlier this morning, uh, and just in case it ever comes up on Jeopardy, it has never happened that leap year and Easter being on April 25th has occurred in the same year. Those two things have never happened simultaneously and won't until the year 3,784. So don't hold your breath. You're not going to see leap year and April 25th Easter for a very long time. When you were researching this, did you happen to, um, did you happen to stumble upon when this formula was established? The formula comes from the early church choosing to celebrate Easter in conjunction with Passover. And so because it's tied with Passover, we use the dating system. This is why the moon comes into play, is because Passover is tied to the moon and the spring equinox. And because the Jewish calendar is lunar in nature, that's why it gets, it gets placed there. And so it's been that way since uh, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. What has changed is the implementation of the calendar system. So using the, the Julian calendar, which is what we use now, that was placed over top of the Easter schedule. And so it dates back to when that calendar system was used as far as the dating that we have now. But they would have always celebrated Easter in the spring related to the cycle of the moon because that is how things were laid out in the Old Testament for the celebration of Passover. It is worth noting that this is not universal to the church. The Eastern church uses a different dating system for Easter. I don't know it off the top of my head. But the Orthodox church celebrates Easter often after the Western Church celebrates it. Right, and that was true this year, that they, um, uh, their Palm Sunday was our Easter. So they were right. a week different from us. 
Um, I was talking to an Orthodox Christian at one point in time. He said, you know, it's really convenient for us that you all have your Easter early because that just means that we get all of the discounts on everything people didn't buy. <laughs> Easter candy is cheap. It's true. It's been marked down already. Right. Yes. So all of that to say, <laughs> the, it is good in this year to make sure that we hear the end of Acts because if we don't hear it now, we don't hear what happens after the Pentecost sermon very frequently at all. Right, and it's a little bit strange uh, because the, the Ascension account is right away in Acts 1. So this right. is out of chronological order. We're moving towards Ascension, yet we haven't heard that reading yet. Correct, yeah. So we, it is messing with the timeline a little bit because Ascension hasn't happened, but now we're talking about things that happened after Pentecost, but that really has been the nature of Easter because we've heard about uh, stuff that happens later in Acts already. Last week's reading was um, Gamaliel standing up and saying, don't worry about them because if, just like any other false teacher, it will die out, and so don't get too worked up, up about it. If it's a false teaching, it'll die away. If it's not, then, and you've per persecuted the disciples, you'll have found yourself opposing God. So we do get a little bit out of sequence here, but I think overall that's okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's move on then to verse 36. Would you read verse 36 for us, please? All, all the way through 41? No, just 36 right now. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the reason why I had you do just one verse is this is the last line of his sermon. And what comes next is how people respond to the sermon. So the sermon begins, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, give ear to my words. And it ends by saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The sermon that happened in between those two lines is a large portion of it is just quoting the prophet Joel and what Joel has prophesied will happen when the Savior comes and how Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy. We'll talk about that a lot more when we get to the Pentecost and Holy Trinity sermons uh, and podcast. But what this does do is lay out for us this line, what has happened and the conditions that Peter is laying before the people of Israel. He gives us one sentence filled with both law and gospel. How does this sentence kind of exemplify this law and gospel preaching? Well, the law and gospel is, is still coming. Uh, it's, it's coming to us right after that um, because the, the disciples, they, they realized that they did not know they did not know um, that he was the Christ. And so they were convicted by what has, everything right. that has happened. Yeah, Peter lays the law on really thick here. This Jesus whom you crucified. Right, right. You did this. You did this. And it's very reasonable to assume that some of the people that are hearing them speak on Pentecost, which is a feast day in Jerusalem, would have been the same people who were there for Passover yelling, crucify him, crucify him, that there is carryover between those two groups. The other thing that 
happens right before this because it's tied to Pentecost, is the same group of people had been mocking the disciples when they were speaking in tongues because they were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so there's a lot of ridicule that's happened. And now Peter is standing up and he preaches the sermon and he lays it out. This is what Joel said would happen. This is what Jesus has done. And now look at your response. You killed him. And the man you killed is the one that God has made Christ and Lord. This is preachable in our current context as well. We, there is a difference because it is true. We were not there yelling, crucify him. We were not there pounding the nails into his arms. But we can talk about this a little bit allegorically to talk about how the reason he's there in the first place is because of our sin. And so when we hear this, this Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus who your sins sent to the cross, God has made both Christ and Lord. But the gospel is, even though we killed him, God still raised him. God made him Christ and Lord over all things. Now we'll read the rest of it, if you would, please. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thank you. Now we get to the main thrust of the reading, the result of Peter's sermon. What is the result? Well, they were, they were I mean, the law was laid on to them, mm -hmm. and they realized what they had done. But yet the promise was, was also iterated to them. They were told to repent and be baptized. Um, but the gospel was also proclaimed to them. Right. Yeah. And so there's the call to repentance, and the people do. They, what do we do next? If we have killed this Christ, what happens next? And Peter's answer, repent and be baptized. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what happens. It's how the law is supposed to work. It shows the way that we have fallen short of the glory of God and then drives us to reconciliation with him. And then there's this neat little line in here. Peter keeps talking. He tells people to repent and be baptized. And in verse 40, he says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So he keeps on preaching. We don't get the record of what he preaches, but the result of that continued preaching is that 3,000, about 3,000, it doesn't give us an exact number, about 3,000 souls were added that day. And so the early church is off, off and running. That's an incredible sermon that 3,000 people are saved, except for who gets the credit for that work. It's not Peter. It's the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder to us that when God's word is active, when it's being preached and proclaimed, 
the one who's saying it, the preacher, the Christian who's sharing with their friend, it's not on you and your words to be effective. It is the Holy Spirit who that causes this to, to work. And the reception of that word, the Holy Spirit bringing that to you, is what allows the response that the law would seek to have. So there's another anachronism there that makes this very confusing, I think, time-wise, to have this chosen as the first reading. Because you're talking about a post-Pentecost experience, but we're before Pentecost right. in the church here. This um, is a Pentecost Day experience. Right, right. And, and the other thing that has at least bothered me about this being out of sequence is here you have, you have Peter um, telling them, you know, repent and be baptized, uh, you know, go, go forth. It's like a reiteration of the Great Commission, which happened right at the Ascension. Right. You know, uh, go therefore and baptize, you know, in my name. Um, so that's also out of sequence. Right. And, and I had almost put that in here that he's doing what the Great Commission commanded. Teach and baptize. So Peter calls people to baptism, but he continues to teach them. And, but this is out of sequence. We've not gotten to the point where we would hear the Great Commission because that happens in conjunction with the Ascension. And we're not there yet. There's still this period of waiting. And so Easter is in, a, in kind of a timeline sense, very, it can be very disorienting. And I, I start my sermon on, for Sunday in this way, anchoring us within the Easter series because we have Easter Sunday, we hear what happens in the morning. The second week of Easter, we hear the story of Doubting Thomas, which happens in the evening. The third week of Easter, we hear the story of Emmaus, which is late afternoon. So we've gone morning, night, and actually eight days later, and then back to Easter afternoon. And so we're kind of all over the map timeline-wise. And then these three readings come to an end for the gospel readings, and we move into Jesus preparing his disciples for his death and treating it as preparation for the ascension. And then we end with the high priestly prayer, which happens on Monday, Thursday. And so we end up all over the place timeline-wise in the season of Easter because Easter's not concerned with the time. Easter is concerned with the results and the effect of the resurrection. And as I'm sitting here talking and thinking this through, I think it's really the, the wisdom of Easter is it's putting us into a season where time doesn't matter, which is a nice foreshadowing of what the resurrection is actually like because time doesn't matter in the resurrection. It's just eternal. There is no more sun because the Lamb of God is the light of the city of God. We're not keeping time any longer. Even when we hear in Revelation the discussion of what, what the saints and the martyrs are doing, the, the martyrs are calling out, how long, O Lord, before you, before you do, before the return? But they're not aware of the passage of time. Well, and that, that makes it, I think, even a better, better reason and a better choice to sing, this is the feast, which is all out of Revelation during the Easter season, because that's completely out of time, too. That's all right. eschatological. It's it's the end times. It's the culmination. It's the new creation. And we're out of time then as well. Right. And I think 
this is the strongest part of amazing the hymn Amazing Grace is that final verse. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we'll still sing God's praise. It'll have just begun or however I've missed the poetry there. Um, but the idea that all of a sudden the passage of time no longer is of concern to us. And so I think the having this timeline that jumps all over the place actually works for the Easter season in a way that it would not work any other time of the year. Because it's showing us that in the resurrection, time no longer matters. Well, that's a good thesis, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so as we look ahead to Sunday, and we think about all of those things that we've just talked about regarding Easter and the way that we observe it, what hymn are we going to focus on this week? Well, be because this week uh, the gospel reading focuses on the, the story of the, the road to Emmaus, uh, we are looking at a hymn that literally um, uh, is focused on that story, tells, tells the story, and then you know, explains some of the meaning of it. And it's number 476 in the Lutheran service book, if you happen to have a Lutheran service book. It's called, Who Are You Who Walk in Sorrow? And it was a hymn written by Herman Stempfli. We'll come back and talk a little bit about him later. But uh, it was commissioned specifically for this purpose. And apparently he really enjoyed this type of a challenge where somebody said to him, we want a hymn for the third Sunday of Easter, the story of Emmaus. Um, and he prefers to write in, in very um, regular poetic meters. And so for him, it was just a matter of, okay, uh, there's my inspiration. I will go into that passage of scripture and write a, a hymn that, that talks about that. So we get this hymn that very much uh, unfolds that story of the road to Emmaus. Now, Herman Stempfli was... Uh, one of a, a group of Lutheran hymn writers from the second half of the 20th century. And we, we talked, we've talked a lot about the others, including Yaroslav Vida, who was a pastor, Stephen Starkey was a pastor, uh, and Martin Franzman, he was, he was also a pastor, I believe. I think so. Yes. Um, the, so those names are probably the, the most prolific of these Lutheran pastors that, uh, um, we, we call it literally a, an explosion of new hymnody that happened at the end of the 20th century. And so this is part of the post-Vatican II. We've all got all of these new readings that we need hymns to go with. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the, um, the group that commissioned this was the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, which is, um, th those are, are musicians who work in Catholic parishes. And, and during the years I worked in a Catholic parish, I was a member of that group. And every, or I should say, almost every major denomination has its own organization like that, where you can meet fellow musicians working in that same denomination. Uh, right now, I belong to the Association of Lutheran Church Musicians because I'm working in a Lutheran parish. Uh, but you can learn a lot from subscribing to those, those other groups, attending their conferences as well. I know the Presbyterians have a group like that. The Episcopalians have a group like that. And there's certainly a lot of cross-pollination between those groups. And then there's other professional groups that are more, more pan-denominational, like the American Guild of Organists. There's a, a national um, guild of handbell ringers. Um, uh, 
There's um, this Choristers Guild for groups that work more with children's choirs. There's uh, the, the um, choral groups. Uh, um, the, just in our state, there's a Wisconsin Choral Directors Association. There's a subset of that that deals with, with worship. So there's plenty of, of, of local and national organizations for us as musicians to interact with. Which is, which is a good thing because we often work in isolation from one another. We don't get that much time to interact. Um, well, that's a, that's a tangent that I didn't plan to go on, but it's, it's still useful information. Right. Well, and it gives you a chance to go and talk to other people about what it's like to have to work with a pastor every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, yeah, that's often a frequent uh, topic of conversation is how do you, how do you develop a, a dynamic where you're working so that you're working in tandem and working towards the same goal rather than working against each other. Because, because I have met a lot of pastors and a lot of musicians, and those are two personality types that don't always align. I'm, I'm frequently very grateful that you and I have meshed so well together. And um, I've, I've been to a workshop where, um, where the presenter was both a pastor and a musician, and I thought one of his most telling comments was he's, he said, I visit a lot of churches. And he said, I can tell the moment I sit down in a worship service within the first, first 10 minutes whether the musician and the pastor get along together. <laughs> I'm surprised it takes him 10 minutes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, does, it does play itself out um, because, uh, well, Eric Routley, who is a, a, a famous um, hymnodist, once said that, that there's so many wasted opportunities in the church where if the church, if the musician and the and the, the the clergy were actually working together, you could accomplish so much. But it, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, you're not on the same page, and right. so it's a real missed opportunity. Yeah. So I am very grateful that we are blessed here to have such a, a good and and strong and productive relationship. Uh, coming back to the, the author of the hymn, uh, Herman Stempfli, his own father was a pastor. You know, this is not unusual that it runs in families that way. And his uh, studies were at the Lutheran Seminary in Gettysburg. And I don't know if you followed uh, that, the recent history of that, but because um, the number of seminaries was, it has been contracting, uh, that seminary was... Uh, merged with another one in Philadelphia. And so it's no longer, it's an independent seminary. But you know, typically we think of Gettysburg, oh, we think of the famous battles from the Civil War at Gettysburg. We don't think of it because of the seminary that's located there, but it's one of their, their flagship seminaries. And uh, Stempfli studied there himself, served some parishes in both Pennsylvania and Maryland, but then later in life, returned to teach there. And he taught homiletics. He taught preaching at Gettysburg Seminary. And um, uh, he did that for, for, for 27 years. And for the last 12 years of that, he was actually the president of the seminary. So a very uh, well-known and revered uh, figure uh, at that particular seminary. In addition to um, his duties there in teaching, um, teaching homiletics or preaching, he wrote a lot of hymns, and um, twelve of them happened to have made their way into our hymns. So that's a that's a very that's substantial a good number. number. His his focus was very often this dialectic between 
law and gospel, which is another reason that I think we've latched onto a lot of it. Oh, we like that. Let's right. If if there's a hymn that that lays that out very clearly, uh, we definitely latch onto that, and that they are very christological in um, their approach. That is, there's they're they're very Christ centered, and because for him, he said, faith, your the whole ground of your faith has to zero in in that on that center of Christ, because if it doesn't, um, I think you're just dancing around the periphery of the issue. And let, let me read, if, if I might, um, a short quote when he was talking about um, his approach to hymn writing and, and to preaching. He said, I think long years of preaching orient you. You have to be as economical and direct as you possibly can without being simplistic. And yet there has to be a certain gracious use of words too. Every preacher has to face that question when writing a sermon. You don't think of it lyrically, but you do strive for some beauty or graciousness in language. And I don't know if you ever think about that in terms when you're writing your sermons, but I think that's a very good way of, of um, uh, uniting those two skills of hymn writing and sermon writing. That has actually been a big focus in the homiletics department or preaching department at Concordia St. Louis over the last couple of years is the idea of making a sermon beautiful. And what does it mean to have a beautiful sermon in image, in speech, in structure, so that it is more than just an essay, but it is something that captures the attention and adorns the word of God in a worthy way. Yeah. Like, it's like the difference between uh, an object, you design an object, it can be very utilitarian and it's, it's functional. Right. But you can also design an object to be artistic. Correct. And it can still be functional while right, being artistic. Right. It can be both. But it it's, should be it, both. yes, it's striving to find both of those things and recognizing that what makes a sermon beautiful will be different based on the man who's preaching it and the congregation to whom it is preached because it's also got to be reflective of the local community and be approachable so it's not some kind of abstract piece of art that you have to puzzle over because it might be beautiful but if you have to work at it it's you've given up its functionality for its beauty but it needs to be both at the same time yeah architecture hat captures that so well it does that a building can be uh it can be beautiful but it can be rather uh, uh non-functional right yeah or vice versa i mean i think of some frank lloyd i don't know if you've, you've toured many frank lloyd Wright things but uh there's some of his homes where i think wow that's it's very beautiful to look at but to me it's not extremely functional right when one example being he designed things with a lot of flat roofs mm -hmm. which in a rainstorm uh, you better hope it's it's very well made because they, right. they, they have the reputation of not being very, very waterproof. Or when it snows a lot and you've got to go up and shovel them off. Uh, I grew up not far from a um, one of those architectural kind of things. It's one of the largest octagon-shaped barns in in North America. And it's been restored and all of that. But there critique or one of the critiques of an octagon shaped barn as while it is beautiful to look at is it's incredibly non-functional in many ways 
because you're having to walk so much further to get anything because you're always walking in a circle. So there's no direct path to cross over to, to get something you left on the other side. You've got to walk all the way around the shape of the barn so you're, you're taking so much longer to go get the tool you left on the other side or to carry feed to the animals that have to be on the other side. And so it loses some of its functionality. It does gain some because apparently you can exercise horses in the middle because you've got a circular mm -hmm. ring, but the functionality for working goes way down. We have taken a detour today, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's turn back to the hymn. Um, the, the story of the road to Emmaus has some, some great parallels and uh, meaning for us because there's, there's the parallel of we walk with Jesus all the time, but maybe we don't always recognize his presence. And so this, this, this metaphor of, of walking the road and then having things revealed to us, I think is something we can easily relate to. And he, he incorporates this in this text in such a great way. Um, in stanza four, for example, um, who are we who travel with you on our way through life to death? We're essentially on a march forward to our death, but yet Christ is there accompanying us. And that may seem like a dark image. And when I first looked at this hymn, I thought, okay, this is an Easter hymn. Um, why did they pair it with, kind of, with a minor key melody? That seems kind of dark to me. But the more I dug into it, I thought, oh, there, is, there are some elements of darkness in here, and that makes it, it makes for a good pairing, even right from the very beginning. Um, who are you who walk in sorrow down Emmaus barren road, hearts distraught and hope defeated, bent beneath grief's crushing load? For an Easter hymn, that's pretty dark. Right, but the, the story of the road to Emmaus starts out in a very dark place because when Jesus approaches them, Luke tells us that Cleopas and Simon are sad. They're yes. grieving. Yeah. yeah, they're grieving. Their, their hopes were dashed. They and were and this is, this is the, the theme of the sermon for Sunday is Cleopas says, but we had hoped. All of their hope is gone. It is a dark moment for them. And reading the rest of this first stanza, nameless mourners, we will join you. We who also mourn our dead. We have stood by graves unyielding, eaten death's bare bitter bread. It is... It is, it is a dark first stanza. It is. But it turns very much to joy as it takes and reverses all of that image as the, the hymn unfolds. That bitter bread is fixed in, in verse 3. Our hearts are opened in the breaking of the bread. Christ the victim, now the victor. And it, it just keeps going on. And it's almost like the rest of the hymn is the undoing of the despair we encounter in verse 1. Right, so it lays out the, um, the, 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 the law, how we've been convicted by all these events that have happened, but then the things of the past are brought to light, our, our eyes are opened, and we see the purpose of all this, that um, uh, especially in stanza three there, who are you, our hearts are opened in the breaking of the bread, Christ the victim, now the victor, living risen from the dead great companion on our journey still surprise us with your grace make each day a new Emmaus on our hearts your image trace and so it's also moving from the past into the present what is 
how is this gospel pulled out of this for us? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other um, nice features of it is then in stanza four, it ends this way. At the font you claim and name us, born of water and the word. At the table still you feed us, host us as our risen Lord. So he points to the sacraments and that this is, this is the means of grace. So we hear it through the word that he has preached to us, but also um, through our sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And um, the last stanza ties it all up with a beginning, Alleluia, Alleluia is the Easter hymn we sing. Seems a little bit peculiar with the minor key tune, but uh, we have several minor key tunes that are associated with Easter. And I think that's maybe um, a maybe a peculiarly Lutheran thing that, that we have uh, brought some of these forward and yet associated with the Easter season. And, and we see that they don't necessarily have that same, same cast to them, um, that just because it's a, a minor key, which we often perceive as being kind of sad, um, that it can still be useful for an Easter hymn. Uh, the, tune, the tunes that are typically paired with this are the ones that, uh, the one that we have in our particular hymnal is called Jefferson. It's from the 19th century shape note tradition. We also sing it to the text uh, of an Advent hymn, um, um, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And so that's the other place we know it from in the hymnal. When I look to see what other tunes this was paired with, it was also paired with another uh, American folk melody from that same period called Holy Manna, um, which goes like this. Who are you who walk in sorrow down Emmaus barren road? You probably recognize yeah, that too. That's not a bad pairing, actually. It's not a bad pairing. Um, and initially, I thought, you know what might be good is just to switch it. And, and use that particular tune. But then when I started to read the text a little bit more and discovered a lot of kind of this, this darkness that's in the initial stanzas, I thought, no, that's the reason they chose the darker, the darker melody. It makes a lot of sense. The only place it doesn't make a lot of sense is that final stanza where it begins, Alleluia, Alleluia. Which tune did Stemfel in, in, intend? Um, the, the other one. The other one. The other one is, it was originally, it premiered as a, as a choral anthem uh, at a convention of the, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, and it was the other tune, the major key tune. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it, that's, I think, interesting that that was the original, and we've chosen the, this other tune. And from what I can tell, uh, it's probably a 50-50 split of, of who uses which tune. So for today, um, I think uh, why don't we why don't we sing stanzas one and four? Sounds good. Who are you who walk in sorrow down Emmaus barren road, hearts distraught and hope defeated, bent beneath grief's crushing load. Nameless mourners, we will join you, we who also mourn our dead. 
We have stood by graves unyielding, eat and as bear bitter breath. Who are we who travel with you on our way through life to death? Women and the young, the aging, waken by the Spirit's breath. At the font to blame and name us, born of water and the word. At the table still you feed us, host as risen Lord. Sorry, I was jumping back and forth between the melody line and the text during verse 4, and that caused me to miss a spot. Right, because there are a couple of spots there where the rhythm changes and you don't quite expect it. Right. But uh, uh, these hymns are very approachable on the whole uh, and easy to sing because they are folk songs. They're meant to be sung by people with, you know, your average amount of, of musical ability and training. A lot of repetition, probably you, you notice the internal repetition mm -hmm. of melodic phrases um, from the beginning to the end. And it just makes, and it's also in a, it's pentatonic. It uses only five notes of the scale. So you, it's maybe a, 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 a little less challenging for that reason. You don't have to worry about stepping on a note that doesn't belong in the scale. Well, and I noticed the tune comes from Southern Harmony, which is a, a tune book that has a lot of these folk tunes in it. And by and large, when you see that it's coming out of there, it just indicates right off the bat that it's going to be a pretty singable piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.